back to the live drop. Mildred Harnack was 26 years old when she enrolled in a PhD program in Germany and witnessed the meteoric rise of the Nazi party. In 1932, she began holding secret meetings in her apartment, a small band of political activists that by 1940 had grown into the largest underground resistance group in Berlin, called the Rote Capella. She recruited Germans into the resistance, helped Jews escape, plotted acts of sabotage, and wrote leaflets that denounced Hitler. When war broke out, Mildred became a spy, sending top-secret intelligence to the Allies. On the eve of her escape, she was ambushed by the Gestapo, and on February 16, 1943, she was strapped to the guillotine and beheaded. Mildred Harnack was the only American in the leadership of the German resistance. In her book, All the Frequent Troubles of Our Days, Rebecca Donner tells the story of her great-great-aunt. Mildred, begin transmission now. Because I'm related to her, I think there was this um, supposition that that I would just rely on family lore and what had been published already about her. Uh, there was a biography published uh, about two decades ago um, by uh, Shireen Blair Breisach called Resisting Hitler, and she did a great deal of research um, but that was a while ago. And, uh, and my did grandmother you, had given, did you at the yeah. time, did you kind of wince with jealousy that she'd written that, that, that biography? I mean, yeah, you you I feel was, a certain proprietary, you feel proprietary to your relatives. I did. Right? I did. Yeah. It was around, I, I, and yet the, my grandmother gave, gave a Shereen Blair, Shereen Blair Brysack materials. She also gave me the same materials and she gave me more materials. So at the time I thought, well, you know, when I am ready to write this book, I'll have more to say. And also, certainly in the years since uh, 2000, there have been new developments and new uh, revelations in my own family, uh, but also just in the history of, of the Rote Capella, the, right, the, the, the Red Orchestra. And so I, I have a lot to tell. I have news. Um, but I also made sure that I wanted to approach the book differently. I didn't want to do a cradle to grave biography that had more or less already been done. And so I gave myself a great uh, deal of artistic license and uh, to look at the story in a different way. And and uh, what I found was that I could achieve this balance. I began to think about uh, this book as a biography, but also as a more than that, as a kind of fusion of biography, espionage thriller, and scholarly detective story. And because I had published works of fiction before, I think I felt I felt that I could play a little bit more um, with the structure and with the approach in a way that that a conventional historian or conventional biographer may not feel as, you know, at liberty to play in this way. So anyway, I, and, and so it is a, a rigorously researched work. Um, I visited archives all across the country, also in Berlin and in London, and I worked with a historian in Moscow. And so I, I really bring breadth of, of research um, and I bring news to the story. And, and I also was able to bring in certain family documents that that no one has seen before. Definitely want to ask you about those. I mean, your, this book has really been, you know, celebrated as like a, you know, like a unique work of narrative fiction. And, um, you know, it's gotten a great, it's gotten a great reception. One of the things I wanted to ask you about was um, kind of your choice of, well, here's the effect that the present tense had, had, had a head on me. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I kind of read another book about the topic, so I knew what was going to happen. <laughs> you know what I mean? So the oh, tension, right. yes. so the tension with, so the tension with, you know, the Nazis on the hunt, you know, are they going to catch them? That that wasn't quite really there for me. But what, what was revealed for me was that was that joy of of uh, research, you know, that you'd, you'd almost like yeah. document documented your actual research. And like yeah. and that that for me was was uh, was was super exciting. That, um, I'm like, oh, well, oh, there's this. Oh, and this is the actual quote or this, this is, is the, the picture. Document. This yeah. is the thing that means the That's- thing. I, Cause I get so tired of talking to, I mean, I don't get tired of talking to authors, but whenever they say, well, you should look at the, you should look at the notes in the back. I, I'm like, no, and if it was important enough, you would have put it in the book. <laughs> Exactly. You know? That's very true. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. And I felt the same way. I mean, early in, in the writing of the book, um, I I had this, I, I was aware that I felt, you know, when I was deep in the archives, I loved the tactile sense of, I loved having, getting the dust on my hands, you know. What does smell like? What do they smell you know, like? Oh, I, exactly. All <laughs> of that. And so I wanted to kind of bring that in, um, in, in, in the book and share that with my readers in some way. And, and an early idea I had was, 
wow, maybe I'll just make my appendix really long, (laughs) half of the book, and then I'll put all of the snippets of documents in the appendix so that people might actually want to read the endnotes instead of just kind of skipping over them. And then I'll have narratives within narratives within narratives. I was getting a little, you know, uh, this was when I was just allowing myself to experiment um, and play with a lot of ideas. And, and, Soon, I, I realized that that maybe wouldn't have necessarily been um, the most compelling way of bringing people into the book. I mean, it would have been interesting, but I would lose some of the general audience. And and another aim of this book for me was to reach a lot of readers, um, not just historians, not just people who are um, World War II nerds, although I welcome them all and I am one myself. Um, but also people who are not acquainted with, um, with this material, uh, and, and may not even be inclined to read a work of nonfiction that, that is heavily, um, that has a lot of citations, um, and, and notes. So, um, so, so then I started thinking about kind of peppering my narrative with these documents and, and, and really bringing them into, uh, the story. And I think also, I, you know, in this day and age, there's so much about, um, and when I was writing this book, fake news, um, and, and so much distrust, um, about any kind of documentation or any kind of claim. And, and I felt all that it was all the more important for me to just put it right there before the reader's eyes. This is Stalin's handwriting right here, you know, Uh, (laughs) and you can see the scrawl. You can see the document. I was particularly happy with that um, archival uh, discovery. Um, um, (laughs) I mean, you almost want to have like the Ribbentrop pack just kind of written out. It's like Stalin (laughs) alive with Hitler. Let's not kind of forget that it's written. Here's the note he wrote. Hey, Hitler. Let's team up. It's his signature. No, except it's the, it's their signatures and and um uh the and and uh, yeah I I mean there were so many there this book could have been you know two thousand pages long if I really let myself um have fun with it um so I had to pick and choose but um but that document so you, so you it, didn't put your poetry yeah. into it you decided I did not, not to put your poetry <laughs> <laughs> I did not I put Goethe poetry in it however very good uh, and of yeah, course nice. this is it's essential to, to, to Mildred. And, and in fact, that's where the title of this book is, is it's derived from a, a Goethe poem that Mildred was translating shortly before she was executed. So, so people often say, why do you have such a long title? All the frequent troubles of our days. Um, and the woman who designed the book cover, certainly the very talented woman who did, um, Alison Saltzman, uh, was able to uh, work with it in such a way that it, that it, it didn't feel like uh, just the the text uh, of the title was dominating the entire cover, but yes, uh, all the frequent troubles of our days is, is a line. Yeah, the cross does kind of draw you in. You're not really sure what it does. What it is. Well, yeah. there's a story there too, because uh, my publisher kept on the first, second, third, fourth, and fifth attempts at the cover all had swastikas on them. And I kept saying, right. no, 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 no swastikas, please. I, can we just be a little more creative? That is, uh, for a host of reasons, I don't want a swastika on the cover of this book. This is what Mildred was fighting. This is what she and her co-conspirators died fighting. And it seems to be valorizing it in, in a way that I just, I would rather that the artist comes up with something more innovative. And so the sixth try, they brought in another cover designer, Alice right. Sultzman, and she Did came they up try with to this- sell you with the color red? I noticed I, oh I interview, gosh, I interview authors. Have... Oh my God. Every spy book. It, it looks like that poster red. right there. Red and black. Red and black. Spy. American spy, swastika, red and black. That's it. Do you, you want to sell books? You want to be, what do you want to do? That's it. That, that, <laughs> and they said, these are the dog whistles, you know, for these readers. Also right, a yeah. sepia toned photograph. That's sort of stock, some kind of stock image. Oh, so it looks um, like a surveillance photo. Yeah. 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 So, mm. so yeah, I like this, this, this graphic, the X, because it, it does kind of calls to mind a swastika, but it's a kind of dismantled swastika. It also calls to mind, um, the, the idea that these people were eliminated, you know, and, um, executed, uh, that there was a kind of erasure. And, and my book starts out with this idea of erasure that, that Mildred was also invested in self erasure and that she participated in her own erasure you might say there was an element of this book where i thought it felt like this could have been i mean you said mildred destroyed her journals and she thought oh god really she must aren't they in a p.o box somewhere and and you know, know. in berlin you know, you know? somebody could somebody in my family could discover them in an attic like they discovered her letters but well, this book in a way was like a recreation of her journals in some ways you know 
Yeah. Well, I, 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 and again, I was, I, I gave myself a, a, a strict set of rules to follow. Anything that appeared, any sentence, any clause that appeared between quotation marks was, was taken from a letter, a journal, a post-war testimony, a memoir, uh, notes discovered in, a, in, in, in an archive. But, but I did not, you know, also, I, I think that there was this supposition, again, going back to our, you know, one of the first things I, I said was that because I was related to Mildred, that I would feel some kind of, I would feel at liberty to surmise about what she was thinking or feeling. And, and I felt that that was, it was very important that I didn't actually. Uh, and that if I ever said Mildred felt this, thought this, believed this, I needed to have a primary source document um, to substantiate that claim. So, so anyway, that, that is indeed what I did. Yeah, this question I'm going to load up pretty heavily, but you <laughs> you might let me down, you might not, I don't know. But as as an actor, as an actor I played um I played Robert Kennedy in a movie with Gary Sinise ages ago like on TNT. And oh, wow. um yeah. and one of the funnest things about acting for me, I don't do much anymore was the research, you know, like finding out yeah. who this person like I would know way too much when in the scene all I did was open a car door and walk up a set of stairs, you know. But right, um, right, I right. did so much research <laughs> on on Robert Kennedy, like I read the biographies at the time. I was reading like the Greek stuff that he was reading at the t- at the time, and um, yes. you know, of course, his growing up and the you know the Kennedys and you know the history of their family, and of course, their father sort of related to that as well. He was, you know, in England and he was kind of a sympathizer, but, but um, yeah. you know, at the point where I f- you finally get to 1968 and the director I was working with had worked with, you know, had was a was a John Frankenheimer was a friend of Robert Kennedy and. And I remember getting to the point in my research where it was, you know, 1968 and John Frankenheimer drives him to this hotel and um, which has since been torn down. And I got to a certain point where I'd known had happened ever since I was a little kid, you know, I got to the certain point where he was, he was shot like in, in the, in the kitchen, you know, and yeah. um, there was a certain point where I just, it surprised, shocked me, but I just heaved tears. I mean, yeah, maybe yeah. a little dramatic, but it, yeah. it, it was like, in that research, I had to, I found myself having to grieve the person as well. I was just wondering if you had a similar experience. Uh, encountering some research and just, and uh, yeah. bawling my eyes out. Oh, sure. Yeah. It happened frequently. And and of course, the, the last letter that Arvid Well, writes, it only happened to me once, but I, you know. Otherwise, you kept your composure. Otherwise, I kind of kept it together. But yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I-, I um, But what, I what was, affected you though? What, what I, well, you? Arvid's last letter certainly did. And, and that was- uh, this this was a letter that that Arvid wrote Mildred right before he was executed, and I found the original uh, in a German archive, and, uh, uh, and I reprint. This is one of the documents that I reproduced in the book, and you know, well, can I interrupt I, you for a sec? What German sure. archive? What German archive? The Gedenkstätte Deutsche Widerstand, the German Resistance Memorial Center. German Resistance, where is that? It's in Berlin. I know it's uh, it's been t- it's a wonderful it's a wonderful place and is it the one near is it the one near the old uh, Gestapo headquarters? It's, it's near the it, it's 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 not quite there. I think you're you're but it's so there is a, uh, there is a memorial there as well uh, to commemorate these events. But this is this is near the Tiergarten and because um, uh, I was stationed in Germany as a soldier. I was stationed in. Oh, really? um, okay. I was stationed there. I got there in um, nineteen eighty, early nineteen eighty nine, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I was stationed at a place which is now the German Archive, National Archive. Yep. And it's in Dahlem. It's on um, Finkenstein yeah. Alley. But anyway, it used to be the building I I was in used to be Prussian Military Academy, right? I think the one where where what's his name wrote letters to a young poet. I, I'm sus- I suspect that's oh, where uh, Rilke. Rilke, mean. I think I think that's yeah. the that's the young poet that he was writing to is in that in that Prussian military game, but also yeah. became the SA headquarters and yeah. that and the night of the long knives that was where they I mean I remember finding the the, the spot on on the grounds where you know so many oh. of the SA were actually just brutally murdered, but um yeah. another place we hung out was uh, the Harnack House that was oh, the yeah, office, sure. that was that was the officers club in Berlin. So yeah, we, yeah. there was all kinds of events at the Harnock. Was, was he related to um, her husband? I know oh, he was yeah, the, yeah. so, the Niels Bohr so Institute is, and so forth. Yes. Yeah, so that, so, so uh, Adolf von Harnock, it was Mildred's husband, Arvid Harnock's uncle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so the, the, the Harnock house was, was named after him. And it was this, and I actually talk about it in my book. Uh, it, it was a very prestigious organization and invited a lot of 
world famous scientists and philosophers and other academics. Um, but also, but the Nazis took it over um, after Hitler became chancellor. And, and so, but anyway, it exists today. So it's something. Oh, I jumped, um, I think I jumped into that when you were visit. talking about reading the letter, like the, the yeah, the yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, well, backing up and, well, and we can, we before, can I made it about, before I made it about me, it was about you, you saying I know. something right. about emotions or something. Well, <laughs> we, we can keep, <laughs> I'm used to this. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, uh, no, it's, it's, um, I'm, I'm happy to just sprawl in whatever direction we sprawl in. Cool. Uh, yeah. We were talking about the, the Gedenkstätte to Deutsche Widerstand, which is yeah. on Stauffenbergstrasse, uh, right, right near the T- Tiergarten. And so oh, I you can that. actually, yeah. I, I, I did take walks through the Tiergarten and sort of retrace uh, some of Mildred's steps. And, and I went to Berlin four different times when I was writing this book, just to try to, um, yes, visit uh, uh, all of the places where she lived, where she taught. And, and of course, where she died, I, I, I went to the Plotensee prison in Berlin. And this is where Mildred was decapitated by guillotine. This is where Arvid was hanged and and uh, many of their co-conspirators. By and large, the women were um, decapitated by guillotine and, and the men were either hanged or shot. Was there any cultural significance to that or is any message they were trying to send out? Well, we can only surmise. Uh, it, it was clear just based on memos um, that the Nazi regime wanted to humiliate the people in this group. And hanging was viewed uh, particularly by Piano Wire, which was brought in for Arvid Harnock, Haro mm. Schulz-Leboysen and others in the group um, for the express purpose of hanging them. And the idea was they would suffer more. Uh, and and so, so in other words, uh, it was... Uh, shooting somebody was seen, regarded as an act of mercy uh, in this in this context. Whereas I, remember the, you, I, remember, I remember reading somewhere that when the guillotine was initially invented by some French guy back in the day, that um, yeah. it was it was it was initially invented as a as a way of killing people kind of quickly without pain. Yes, that's right. And so you're you're absolutely anticipating my what, what I was going to say, which is that uh, for that, so that they did view the guillotine um, as a as a kind of also uh, a more merciful way of murdering somebody. And so the women received this um, as a as a punishment. And uh, but this was just for this group. I should also mention that other resistance groups, including the Vaisorosa, the White Rose, they were men and women alike were uh, decapitated. So it was also seen as a way of very swiftly executing somebody. And, and as, you know, as in the later years of the Nazi regime, there became more and more people that the regime wanted to murder, more and more political opponents, as well as Jews and gypsies and uh, and anybody else and homosexuals and anybody else who, who were deemed unfit, not full person, uh, according to the, sort of the Nazi ideology. And so therefore must be disposed of. And so um, there, there became an, a need for killing machines that were efficient. And so in my book, I, I do go into the history of this particular guillotine. I, I traced it back. I, I found the man who invented it uh, and who built it uh, in Germany, this particular guillotine. He wanted to improve on the French guillotine and make it more efficient. He was a clockmaker, actually. And this is a sort of in late 1800s. And, and, but he made, he made a handful of guillotines and they fell into disrepair because there wasn't a need to decapitate loads of people back then. And for almost 100 years, not quite a hundred years, but but uh, basically, uh, rather a half century. Then uh, a half century later, there became a, a more pressing need to execute people, uh, and so this is how it was brought back into use. And it wow. was um, you like even was... research the guillotine. Oh, what, I did. What, what I did. Is, one of the things about yeah. interviewing authors is like I'll read the book, and if I read it. If read it and some time goes by, I'll actually come up with things that sound like it's my idea, but it's actually in your book. <laughs> 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 you know, let me tell you something. Yeah. Um, it's like a whole, it's a whole nother level of mansplaining, right? It's like, um, yeah, not only did you just explain this to me, but like, I actually wrote it's it in the book. book that you read. Yes. Yeah, I was the book, one that so. researched that. I, I, I came up with that. that. <laughs> um, um, <laughs> well, wait, so we, we actually, we need to trace back to the letter. So Arvid's letter, you had asked me about right, yes. uh, the things that, that, that something that would make me weep. Um, yeah. and, and so, yeah. Um, 
Arvid's letter. He he wrote this letter shortly before he was executed. And that letter never ceases to bring tears to my eyes. I, I've read it hundreds and hundreds of times. And I actually um, did, did the audio recording for, for my audiobook. Um, writers don't tend to do this. The publishers don't like it when they do, by and large, because it takes a lot longer uh, for the author to read a book typically than somebody who does this as, as you know, for a living at a training. Yeah. Anyway, I auditioned for this and I got it. I, it, I have to speak multiple languages in the you book. You had to audition have, to read your own book? I did. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Who was your competition? Who was your competition? Kate Blanchett. Kate Blanchett. <laughs> yeah, <I know>. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never tell. Yeah. Um, but uh, no, they didn't. Who'd you beat out to read um, your own book? Yeah, you <laughs> I wish your... I knew. I wish I knew. Yeah. Uh, but I had to speak German, you know, French. Um, there, there's even some Russian in the book. So so, uh, and I, when I got to Arvid's letter, the director, you know, this is during the pandemic. So I'm in a sound studio and the director is in, where was she? Montreal, I think, um, or Toronto. I can't remember which, but I never saw her face to face. She was really just a voice in my headphones, um, in the sound booth. And we got to the letter and I warned her, I said, you know, this always makes me tear up. So we might have to do a couple takes. And she said, no problem. And we did about 50 takes because I couldn't get through a sentence without starting to feel um, emotional. It, it's a, it is a deeply moving letter and it really is a testament to their political conviction, their love. And it is a, an incredibly emotionally courageous document and really does show how the choices that he made, he says, he doesn't regret. And here he is just, you know, hours before being hanged in this brutal way. And, and this is what he produces, this letter, this gorgeous right. letter. Yeah. So, and Mildred read it countless times. Um, we know this because her cellmate did survive and Mildred gave her, Gertrude was her name, Gertrude Kalapath, Um, She gave Gertrude the letter and said, if you survive, please give this back to the family. And Gertrude promised that she would. She was transferred to the Ravensbrück concentration camp. And, uh, and she indeed survived just barely. And in 1952, she wrote to Arvid's mother, she tracked her down and said, I have something for you. And it was the letter. So this is why we have the letter today. Wow. That's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Ravensbrück, that was an all women's prison, I think, right? <laughs> yes. Yes. And there was a, a, there's an excellent book out uh, by the, uh, the British journalist, Sarah Helm, that goes into great depth about the camp. Um, mm -hmm. So I urge any listeners, if they're interested in reading about it more to get that book. Well, first they should get your book and read that. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Oh, and I have a question actually. So you yeah. said that, that you, you all, you are familiar with the story because you read another book. What would, what book, book might that be? Is oh, that the Norman Oler book? The, yeah, the, Bohemians. the Bohemians. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, if you want a, an interesting little anecdote about that. Yeah. Um, I was in the, the National Archives, and uh, this is early on in researching this book. And this is before the pandemic, of course. This is when was this? I mean, I had been I've been on and off researching this book for about a decade, but this was when I really started in earnest to go to the American Archives and uh, look at espionage files. And there were just a handful of of uh, people in the National Archives and a, and a handful of um, archivists and. And I was telling the archivist what I was looking for. And then I heard a voice with a strong German accent say, oh, are you writing a book about Rote Capelle? And I turned and I said, wow, you know about, you know about them. Not that many people do. And he, he said, well, I overheard you say the name Mildred Harnock. And I said, oh, yes. Um, and he said, well, I'm writing a book about that, too. <laughs> and I said, what? Really? Um, and I May the best have... author win. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then he, then he turned heels and walked away. <laughs> he said, "Tell me everything you know." Um, but anyway, yeah. that was that was Norman Oller, um, and uh, and he's so he good. Was, he's a good guy. He's kind of dry. He's got a dry Berlin Berliner sense of humor. Yeah, you know? right. but he was focusing on Horace Schultz Boysen and 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 Libertas, um Yeah, that's what I wanted to bring up because his book his book sort of described them as sort of the the the, the ring leaders, and in yours and yours yeah. seems a little more Mildred centered. I don't I don't know if that was just well, it's I mean even the idea of the the, the way that we can see of sort of leadership, even when I say Mildred was 
was the only American in the leadership of, of the German resistance. It's a bit of a misnomer because it's not a sort of triangle. We always think it's sort of like this triangular structure where there's one person at the top, the leader, and then there the others underneath him. And, and, and that is not how this group was organized. And by design, um, they were cells and independent cells operating that were sort of a loose network of these cells that, that formed a kind of interlocking chain. And each cell had a kind of focal point, you might say. Harald Schulz-Boysen had, uh, had a small cell. He worked, of, at like of, an air, he worked at like an air base or something like that. At the Luftwaffe, Luftwaffe, yes. Luftwaffe, but, yeah. but, but what's often, uh, and this is one of the, the, the things that I bring to this book, is that I don't just talk about their wartime espionage and, and resistance. I trace it back to the beginnings. I, 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 I write about Harald Schulz-Boysen in the early 30s um, when, when he was basically um, involved in putting out an illegal newspaper and was hauled off to a c- concentration camp and bludgeoned and saw his and his friend also who worked with him was bludgeoned and, and died. And, uh, and that really fired, fired him up. But uh, he had his own group then and it was five, seven people, you know, small group. Um, and then over the course of the 30s, his group became, you know, that uh, members of his group became uh, new members of Mildred and, and Arvid's group. And there was a point at which, uh, and, and, and there was a, actually two, there were at least two other sort of cells, and they had people in them who knew the other people. And I, in my book, I, I actually connect the dots. And so you can see each of these individual underground resistance groups. It was completely decentralized. I mean, was, people, yeah, I yeah. mean, people obviously criticized them because they didn't have compartmentalization, but it, but they didn't have an, an over an overseeing organization. You know, it wasn't like, you right, know, they, right, they did their best. Right. They had to they kind of put it, put it together. And that was one and, thing they had and to give up. They, and, and they, well, they developed this too over the course of the thirties because, you know, they weren't exactly sure what they were doing in the beginning. Um, and, and, and were they just kind of just, were they just sort of like liberals complaining about the government like early on or, <laughs> they, you know, at what point did they become like an active resistance that, you know, with consequences? Well, that's a great question. I mean, in, in the early thirties, even before Hitler became chancellor in, in 1933, and there's evidence that in 1932, Mildred and Arvid were already holding meetings and yeah, they were, yes, fetching about the government and Hitler and the, and the rise of the Nazi party and what should be done. And, and at this point, uh, Hitler was regarded as a, uh, largely in the press as a buffoon. Um, he had run for president and lost, uh, but he was immensely popular and, and Mildred taught at the, at the university of Berlin. And she saw, um, in her students how he affected, uh, um, and, and inspired a lot of them. And she was disgusted, you know, and, and, but she also, uh, knew students of hers and she sought them out who was these students who were revolted by, by the, the Nazi party and, and, and her, in her classes, these students became her early recruits. But they they really they would they would get together. They would they would read uh, after after the uh, Hitler became chancellor and books were banned. Um, they would read banned books. They would talk about what to do, how to overthrow the government. But they really didn't in 33, 34, You know, there were leaflets, uh, but but they didn't. This still at the in those early years. Mildred and Arvid and others didn't think that the regime would last. And they thought that it was just a matter of time before the people would revolt. And in 1935, it became abundantly clear that this was not happening. And so it was that year that they switched their strategy uh, and they decided, you know, the only way to sort of, it was two pronged. One, they would uh, penetrate the Nazi regime from within. So Arvid got a job at the Ministry of Economics, posing as a loyal Nazi in order to get access to to documents, um, top secret documents about Hitler's operational and later military strategies. And then the other part of the strategy was to reach beyond Germany's borders and try to find people in the resistance in other countries and and, and forge a union with them. Um, they needed help. They couldn't do this alone. Like, and they Martha, became, like people like yeah. Martha Dodd or someone like that. Oh, well, I mean, she was, she was, a, she's a, she's a different story. <laughs> she's, a, she's your next book. <laughs> I see you have know? Martha Dodd written on your, you have Martha written on your, your, your blackboard behind you, your whiteboard. Oh yeah. 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 Well, that's top secret. What's behind me. That's going to be my next book. Um, yeah. So that <laughs> I took down all my notes from the, the from this book and, and I, am I live near Shell Canyon actually. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's a land, it's a landfill. 
Truthy's home. Really, Next to the landfill. But I but I'm wondering, you said that 1935 they switched over. And then I mean this is one of those things I have like I have questions, but I really have like four different points. Maybe you can draw it all together for me. I mean sure. they went from you know, sure they weren't they were they weren't compartmentalized, right? They were more or right. less they decided 1935, yeah, they, they're gonna start undergoing taking on some operational activities, but still they were communicating. They knew who each other were, right? I mean, they were sort of like underground light, you know, like the mezzanine underground, you know? So it wasn't quite, it wasn't quite fully underground. And when did, when did the Russians get in, when did the, were the Russians involved and how did they influence their tradecraft? I mean, really 1935 was indeed when they started to become more careful because that is when two months after Arvid got a position at the Ministry of Economics. He was contacted by the Russians and they saw an opportunity for him to uh, steal documents and, and pass them along to Stalin. You know, Stalin at that point being Hitler's enemy, uh, of course, then, then he was his friend uh, for, for a minute um, after, uh, uh, you know, in 39 with their pact. And then, of course, they became enemies again. But at this time in 1935, Arvid was receptive to this idea uh, because, again, they were talking about reaching out to other countries and to obtain assistance in defeating Hitler. And that also meant finding Hitler's enemies and giving them Hitler's secrets. So Arvid did um, the, the Soviets. Well, and I also talk about this at length in my book, but they had, briefly they had his they had their eyes on on Arvid. Um, as early as, as 1931, and and this this is a sort of typical uh, strategy in Soviet espionage. They 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 play the long game, and so they knew. Uh, and and I and I found these documents in in um, in Soviet era espionage files um, that that they had their eye on on Arvid, and and were just waiting for the right time to pounce. And in 1935, they they found their moment, and so Arvid agreed to give them information. Um, they did say to him at the time, there's no compartmentalization, you know, not adequately. And, you know, your group, you can't affiliate yourself at all with them anymore. Uh, you, you, you cannot associate with anyone who's on the left end of the spectrum. So no communists, no social democrats. Um, you have to look like a, a loyal Nazi. And so you have to um, disentangle yourself. And so they gave him a code name. Um, his first code name was Balt. And this was the time at which Mildred started taking over the meetings because Arvid could, could no longer be affiliated, associated oh, okay. with them. Yeah. And so then she started leading. She, she took a more active leadership role at this point. Um, and we know this from post-war testimony from survivors. Um, there were not many survivors, but there were a few, and and those few who survived did write memoirs. So yeah, and then they became. We also know from that particular source that they started giving themselves code names, or at least um, they would know each, they would only know each other on a first name basis. Uh, in in case they were arrested by the Gestapo and tortured, then and if they gave in, uh, they could only name one or two people, and they wouldn't even know what their last names were or where they lived. So this this became part of the new strategy uh, when they started recruiting, or rather when they continued recruiting into the group, there was much more of a of an effort to maintain um, this compartmentalization and, and this kind of anonymity. Again, yeah. they, they made their best efforts. They, they, they were imperfect. And but you know, uh, I was talking yeah. to your nemesis, Oh, Norman. <laughs> he said he was my nemesis. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just making it up. I'm just trying to create some some conflict here. Conflict makes it more interesting. Yeah, yeah. I'm so, not falling for it. <laughs> all right. Okay. You, you won't take the bait. You won't take the bait. So I was talking to your colleague, Norman. And, uh, but he, he said he, in his book, he brought out that one of the, and it's interesting, one of the, one of the advantages, possibly advantages, I don't know if it was related or not, of, a, a group that that knows each other almost like like a family in some in some ways is that there weren't any there weren't any leaks until they started getting arrested. I mean, there weren't any personal um, nobody ratting other people out until the pressure was on until they started getting yeah, arrested. Yeah, not, not nobody so like as- nobody like went out and solicited you know solicited information about the group until they started pulling the thread. Uh, yes, that that may be true. I mean, you know, I, I there. Arvid and, and Mildred did get their apartment raided in 1940, and they suspected, you know, who who tipped off the Gestapo. They didn't know. They were mm. worried about their that there was a mole somewhere in the group, um, and they spoke about that. Uh, Arvid actually mentioned that to Greta Kukov, uh, who who was one of the survivors, and she wrote about this in uh, you know after the war. Um, 
that they thought there was a mole and, and they never knew if there, if there, you know, if there had been one, they didn't know who it was, but it, in any case, I mean, you never knew at that point. It was, it was a Gestapo technique to introduce a a mole in, in, in a group like this. And, and, um, or suspicion somebody who could yeah. insinuate themselves into the group and then could you know whisper to the to the Gestapo but that's not how they were discovered they were discovered um if indeed there was a mole they, they can were describe discovered that? can you describe how they discovered by like a bookstore in some bookstore in Paris oh, oh well that it is a, <laughs> it's a very elaborate story actually that yes does yeah. involve a bookstore in Paris um that has to do with how they cracked the code but um Harold was the first person to be arrested and uh, he was arrested because, well, so we're going to skip over. I'm, I'm going to back up, actually. Everybody's so, going to so, read the book and know what we're talking about anyway. Yeah, right, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. um, once the war started uh, and then and then there was um, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact and then and then Hitler invaded the Soviet Union. And I should also mention that Haro Schulze-Boysen and Arvid Harnock warned Stalin for at least six months that Hitler was about to invade. And that document that I was speaking of earlier with, with Stalin's handwriting scrawled across it, that was the report that compiled the intelligence um, that Arvid and Haro had, were giving to the Russians um, right. saying, hey, Hitler's about to invade. You, you might want to you know, uh, um, pay attention. And, and because Haro was at the Luftwaffe, he gave specific information about missions that were planned. And, and because uh, Arvid was at the Ministry of Economics, he also had access to a military, uh, basically funding and attempts to finance uh, the war and the invasion. And, and so this was very credible, specific information, high quality, high grade intelligence, as they say in espionage um, communities. And yet Stalin refused to believe this and in fact thought that these Germans were trying to double cross him. And, uh, and so he scrawled across that document, something that was profane. It, it appears in a, in a chapter called Stalin's Obscenity. And since uh, I'll keep this clean, so I won't say what it is, but you have to read my book um, and you'll see that the, <laughs> what indeed he said about these two Germans. And a few days later, you know, Hitler did invade um, the Soviet Union and took Stalin completely by surprise. Haro and Arvid were not the only people who warned Stalin that, that he was about to be invaded. But this was a significant contribution uh, that they made um, to providing a, a, you know, a very clear warning. Stalin wasn't to be edited. This is coming out of the, the, the great purges where he, he offed almost, you know, everybody in, in the high ranking positions. And, and that actually speaks to why the next error occurred, which is that then they had to start using radios, radio transmitters to, to give information to Moscow Center. And so they were, they were hastily trained, poorly trained, that the transmitters were breaking all the time. They would be parachuted in and picked up, uh, you know, at great personal danger. You know, anybody caught with one of these hulking apparatuses uh, would, would be easily, would easily draw the attention of the Gestapo. So there's a chapter in my book where I describe Greta Kukov. She she had one in a suitcase that she was basically transporting, and and she wrote about this in her memoir. And it's just straight out of the John Le Carre novel, and and she's meeting up with her handler. Basically, it's funny though. Though you describe these people, it's suddenly it's how, how would you explain it? It's sort of this. There's like a this the spy element of this is almost like a surprise genre appearance because you're starting to kind of meet these people and their academics and they're working and they have strong beliefs. Then all of a sudden. They're doing spy stuff, right? You know? Right. Yeah. And, uh, and you, but in a way, you can sort of see how that would become necessary, or how it would sort of. They, these people seem really modern to me. You know. Oh, interesting. You know? Modern. And, yeah. Yeah, like 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 they're like the stuff they were talking about. Their their references. Yeah. Their you know what what they like to do. You know. Um, yeah. It didn't seem like it was a hundred years ago. You know. Yeah. And uh, but you know, the Gestapo, Nazism, the cold, all this, the Russians, all this stuff creeping up on them. You can kind of see how that, how that could happen. You can kind of feel it in a way. Oh yeah. And they, they never saw themselves as spies. Uh, Arvid actually frustrated his control officer. By this point, he had a new code name. It was Corsican. And, uh, and, and I, you know, tracked down the, um, the memos uh, between, um, basically his group and their group, uh, which at that time I should also interject that, they didn't call themselves the Red Orchestra at this time. Mildred's nickname for the group was The Circle, and it was Arvid's nickname as well. Uh, they didn't find out until 
they had already been arrested um, and were and a mass trial was in preparation that the Abwehr actually had given them this name, the Red Orchestra. Uh, and so never a name that they used themselves. But they didn't see themselves as spies. And, and Arvid did frustrate the hell out of his uh, control officer because he would not take orders. And he reiterated, I'm not going to I'm not going to do what you tell me to do. I'm only going to do what I want to do. And, and um, I'm doing this because- You're not the boss of me. You're not the boss of me. Exactly. I'm, I'm in the resistance. I'm, I'm not a, a, you know, a Russian spy, but, but um, to the extent that your objectives overlap with mine, yes, we'll work together. And so, but anyway, but I was describing how basically there were these, these radio transmitters and there were these, there were these hulking things and they were breaking down all the time. And, and then the, the, the operators were, uh, you know, had never, Hans Koppi, um senior was one of them. And, uh, and he was hastily trained and, and he, one sort of blew up when he pl- plugged it into the wrong outlet and then that had to be replaced. And so they're just bumbling around and their lives at any moment, if they're caught again, uh, making a radio transmission, uh, transporting the radio transmitter, they could be arrested. And knowingly at this point, anyone caught uh, or accused of and convicted of high treason faced the, the death penalty. So they were taking this risk knowingly every day. And so, uh, but, but again, this is now how they, during the war, transmitted these secrets that Arvid and Haro were, were stealing from the ministries, the Luftwaffe and the Ministry of Economics, and other members of the group at this point had also penetrated other ministries. So they were getting these secrets, sending them to Moscow, and uh, one was inter- one of these messages was intercepted, and then another was intercepted. And, uh, you know, what came in, it's just, it's Morse code, and, and then first that has to be deciphered, and then the the code itself has to be deciphered. Um, and, and now we're getting to your to, to the bookstore in Paris. So there's a code book and they needed to find um, that would help them crack the code. And it took about a year. They they brought in their a crack team, you know, their best cryptologists and more than a dozen led by this mathematician. And it took about a year, but finally they cracked the code. And what they discovered when they cracked the code one of these messages, whoever had sent it, committed a from Moscow Center had committed a espionage 101 mistake, which was that he wrote not the code names, but the real names of the people in the, the group and their addresses. And one of the real names and one of the addresses belonged to Arvid Harnock. So now they knew that Arvid was in this group and several others. And I go into, again, I go into this in depth in my book, but they still then were waiting to pounce the Gestapo. And eventually uh, there, there are a series of other kind of mishaps and I go into them in, in, in the book, but basically then they decided now's the time and they arrested Harshold's voice and at his um, office at the Luftwaffe and Libertas, his wife tried to warn as many people as possible in the group that the Gestapo was onto them. Did he work at the Luftwaffe office on um, Clay LA? Because that was part, that was like uh, the American headquarters. Gosh, um, he was, now I don't even, I don't remember offhand. It's actually in my book um, because I looked at a map and I wanted to get a sense of the distance from exactly where, where Libertas was and where Haro was. And, and, and I wanted to also sort of try to retrace Libertas's steps because she was, she tried to warn as many people as possible, and then she uh, she was caught um, while fleeing on a train by Horst Kopko, who was also the person who then traveled 500 miles to Nazi-occupied Lithuania to personally arrest Mildred Arvid Harnock as they were trying to escape. Uh, their plan was to flee to Sweden, and Horst Kopko and a car full of Gestapo officers dressed in plain clothes. It's kind of a creepy description of Libertas Schultz Boyson. She was extremely attractive. All of the, (laughs) this is repeated over and over again. The women are constantly sexualized um, in the Gestapo reports. Right. Um, There's one that says Libertas and Mildred had a, had an affair. And and this, this is all stemming from a lot of, and then journalists repeating these things and, and then legitimizing them. So there was somebody, Gilles Perrault, a a French journalist in the sixties, who then sort of repeated this in, and, and there was also a German historian who was as well repeated it. And so these are, that's actually, those are some of the, those are examples of the kinds of. Some of the misinformation that kind of came up. That, that gets almost retweeted, you know, um, through the decades, uh, like a bad tweet. And then suddenly somebody thinks 
that this is really something that it, it has the appearance of a fact when when it's just when actually it's it's um it's a completely erroneous statement. But anyway, yeah. So yeah. Gestapo pounced. 119 men and women were arrested. Mildred was the only American woman in the group. There was one man who, uh, John Zieg, who was born in Detroit, actually, but had lived most of his life in Germany. So technically, there was another American in the group. He committed suicide shortly after he was arrested. He just was faced interrogation and the interrogation was brutal. And this particular, there were a number of them that were assigned to this group, but there was one in particular, a very sadistic man who was assigned to interrogate Mildred and Arvid. And he was a Walter Habecker was his name. And he had a little smudge of a mustache, just like Hitler's. And um, he had favorite torture devices and uh, there's one post-war testimony of, from somebody who did survive, who described at length these devices and and this sadistic Nazis uh, interrogation techniques. Um, and yeah, so for three and a half months, Mildred was interrogated, uh, incarcerated and interrogated by this man at Harvard was as well. And there was this mass trial that was being prepared and it was a treason trial. Why was Mildred only given six months? She wasn't six years. Initially. Six years. Yeah, but six months is oh, something that is initially. one of the errors that is repeated. Some books say that she was given six months in prison initially as a punishment. It was six years. But then that was overturned by Hitler's direct order. And he ordered her to be tried again and, and executed. So on February 16th, 1943, she was strapped down to a guillotine at Plötzensee Prison and decapitated on Hitler's direct order. Plötzensee. Plötzensee. Yeah. And I visited that. Yeah. Um, as I mentioned, yeah, it's the, the guillotine itself isn't there, but um, the hooks still are where Arvid and others were hanged. And it's one of those sites that really? not many people know about or visit. And so, and that's where all of the 1940, July 1944 plotters also were executed um, at Plötzensee. And, and some of those members were in Arvid's family, including Dietrich Bonhoeffer. But yes, they were all executed. But you mentioned something about how it, that it was the Russian thing that sort of kept Mildred from being, you know, recognized for her resistance and her her contributions, even her even her espionage. I mean, I mean, is she is she recognized by other military other intelligence historians, or or is this something that still kind of endures? That I, no, not so much. But um, as recently as. When the first biography was published about Mildred, there was still it was sort of coming on at the end of a period where she was viewed for many years, decades, um, through a Cold War lens. And so uh, the group was, in 1947, the New York Times published an article about Mildred and, and the group and talked about a sensationalistic conspiracy that she was involved in. And other, other newspapers also glommed onto that term. And and um, yes, because they had done espionage, uh, that they were involved in espionage and had collaborated with, with the Soviet Union, um, they were all viewed as, as traitors to Western democracies as well, um, which, again, is another error because Mildred also and Arvid had also passed information to the Americans. It wasn't just the Soviet Union. They were, um, uh, and it was also a very diverse group. Yes, there were communists and social democrats. They did tend to be on the left end of the political spectrum. But these post-war accounts basically described them as communist spies working for Stalin and failed to address the nuances and, and the rationale for working with the Soviet Union um, and 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 even the United States and the, the CIC, who had been sort of pursuing the idea that there was a war crime that had been committed, uh, and, and that the person who had basically overseen Mildred's incarceration and, and torture should be brought to justice and sent to Nuremberg. Well, the U.S. intelligence memo that I uncovered. Uh, there was an officer who said, basically, for the same reason, um, this sort of Cold War bias uh, against anybody who had affiliated themselves in any direct or peripheral way with the Soviet Union, said Mildred Harnock's execution was justified. And this is an American official saying that an American woman who was trying to fight Hitler and was decapitated um, for doing so, somehow that that was punishment was merited. So that tells you something about the psychology of was that mustache guy ever prosecuted? <laughs> Walter Habecker. Oh, good, good. <laughs> but you know, it's interesting that there were both British and, and U.S. intelligence 
recruited some of the people who were directly involved in the arrest, imprisonment, and torture and execution of Mildred Harnock and others in the group. Um, Horst. Oh, they brought them into the Galen organization. The Galen organization. They were okay, to yes. Go and and, and the also Horst Coco, yeah, who had yeah. mentioned earlier, who had personally arrested Mildred and Libertas and um, Arvid. He was one of the people who um, was recruited by British intelligence. And they gave him a code name, Peter Cortes, and gave him a new identity as the manager of a textile company and faked his death. So before they gave him this new identity, I'm reversing the order of things, but yeah. And, oh, wow. um, and so he was never brought to trial at Nuremberg and, and he had done, a, he was a high ranking Nazi who had done a lot of dirty deeds. And again, for, for the same sort of Cold War reasons, they thought, let's protect this Nazi. Let's use him as a source. Uh, we can learn a lot about communism and Soviet espionage techniques from him. And, um, and so let's overlook the fact that he, that others want to try him for war crimes. Uh, let's use him as a source. What they didn't know was that he and other Nazis were basically trying to pass themselves off as these experts on Soviet espionage so that they could save their own skins. And in fact, they blew up the sort of the idea of this group as this vast, sprawling conspiracy that was on the verge of taking over Western democracies across the globe. And, you know, US and British intelligence bought it and discovered later that they had been duped. Oh, God. So anybody having to do with the investigation yeah. of these yeah. guys benefited from it. Yeah. Wow. That's terrible. But I mean, Hitler tried to, he tried to erase it, but it looks like they tried to. No, like no. Didn't work, uh, you so. know, word got out eventually. Yeah. I, and that's the thing about trying to suppress things. I think historically, even in my own family, my great grandmother, this is Aunt Mildred's older sister. Harriet? tried. She, she tried. This is to, Harriet. This is Harriet. Yes. The, the, Harriet. <laughs> Harriet, I was like, who is this character? She was like, uh, I think you wrote that she was a trash talking bookworm. I was like, oh my God, oh, yeah. I'm, in lo- I'm in love. Oh, where, you, where yeah, is of she? course, of yeah. course. Oh, I love that you remember that. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and that, uh, that she was, and she was yeah. the first in the family to go to college, uh, the University of, of Wisconsin, and, and Mildred followed in her footsteps. She was so inspired. But Harriet also, she, she married uh, a man she, who she met at the University of Wisconsin. He worked in DC as a as an attorney, um, and uh, and she was afraid after the war that he would be branded a communist because of the familial connection to Mildred. Oh, and wow. so, for for this reason um, and other reasons, sort of complicated emotional reasons having to do with the way that she dealt with grief, I guess. But she told the she ordered the family to burn every letter, every photograph uh, having to do with Mildred. And she, in, in a letter, which I obtained. I don't like her as much anymore. But no. <laughs> <laughs> she said in a letter, she said, um, the sooner that we erase this, the sooner that we erase the memory of Mildred, that the sooner we can move on with our lives. And so indeed, uh, she, she was unaware that her own mother had stashed a bundle of Mildred's letters in the attic. And so after my great-grandmother died, my grandmother um, discovered them. And those were the letters that she gave me. Oh, good. God, they escaped the Harriet censorship. But who knows? I mean, there was pressure in those days. There was a lot of pressure. And, you know, it's it's easy to sort of simplify. Yeah. Um, what else was up in the attic? Any other cool motive? stuff? Any I, other you cool know, stuff I remember that attic because I, I would go up there it's with my brother and we, would, we found yeah. a lot of marbles, jars of marbles and buttons. Well, thank you very much for being on the live drop. Thank you so much. This was um, such a fun mar- discussion. I'm glad you kind of rolled with, rolled with me on some of these things. <laughs> That was my conversation with author Rebecca Donner. Her book was All the Frequent Troubles of Our Days. It's really worth checking out. Um, her, her research and her personal experience with the topic is really evident on the page. I uh, really enjoyed the book. And if you enjoyed this ad-free conversation, you might want to consider a one-time PayPal donation, PayPal slash The Live Drop. And the link is also in the show notes. Also, shout out to our listener, Susanna Weeks. Thank you very much for your generous contribution. Um, That's what keeps us on the air and the transmission.